0: inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know, Ask Katie Anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host. My name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And if you're new here, welcome. Each week I answer around 10. Today, I think we have nine questions from each you out there in the audience about mental health. And there's no wrong question. There's no weird question. There's nothing that we don't talk about here. And I try my best to get through as many as possible. I am at this point, and I'll probably post this on the community tab today, but I'm two weeks ahead on my podcast just to give my husband, Sean, who does all of the editing and audio mixing and stuff like that, to give him enough time to to do them. So it's not like last minute, like we were doing before. So if you have seen that your question got hearted by the channel, yet it hasn't come up. That's just because we're a little bit ahead of schedule, which is good for me and good for Sean. So please be patient, it will come out. And if I have hearted the question that you asked, know that it will be answered, okay? And if you have any other questions, just let me know. I'll do my best to get through them. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into question number one. Now, question number one says, Katie, can you give us an overview of what a therapist does versus a psychologist? what's the difference between therapy and psychotherapy? Would someone who struggles in all different areas benefit from seeing a psychologist rather than a therapist? For example, if someone has autism, complex PTSD, OCD, and an eating disorder, would a therapist be able to help them in all areas? Good questions. Or would a psychologist be best suited since they have more education? Hmm. If someone went to a trauma specialist, would they also be trained to help with their autism, OCD, and eating disorders, or just the trauma aspect? Thanks, Katie. And there are a couple of follow-ups that I'm going to read now because they're kind of all in the same vein. It says, ooh, actually, to add to this point also, what is the difference between a counseling psychologist and a clinical psychologist? Hmm. And the difference between counseling and a therapy session. Another comment asks, therapist or counselor? What's the right word to use? These are all amazing questions, so let's just jump into it. Now, the first component of it, the first part where it says, "Can you give us an overview of what a therapist does versus a psychologist?" The truth is, a lot of these term like terms or jobs are very, very similar. When it comes to education, psychologists do have a 4-year degree outside of their undergraduate degree. So they went to grad school for four years, whereas a therapist went for two. I have my master's in clinical psychology. A psychologist has their doctorate. And psychologists can go on. Maybe therapists can too, but it's more, it's a different type of research. But psychologists sometimes go into research. So it's a non-clinical based degree that they get. And psychologists can also go into clinical psychology, meaning that they are gonna offer therapy to you in the same way that I would. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So when you go in to see a therapist, counselor, psychologist, or social worker for clinical therapy, for what we call clinical psychotherapy, it's gonna feel the same. The real difference here between all of these different types of mental health professionals is their specialization. Now, when we ask a clinician about what they can treat, we don't just wanna say like, what can you treat? And they say, oh, I can treat, and people give these crazy long lists. When you go online, like I've personally been looking for a therapist, and when you go online, it gives these crazy, insane long lists about things that that therapist or psychologist or whatever can treat. You wanna ask about where they went to school maybe, where they gained their hours, why they call themselves a specialist, in eating disorders or autism or OCD, self-injury, things like that. We want to be a little bit more specific and ask them about those things versus just taking them for their for at their word that they specialize in this. Like if someone says they're a trauma specialist, you can ask like how many years and what type of treatment modalities do they use? Meaning like what types of therapies do they offer? We can ask those questions. And that's really what I would encourage people to do here because the difference between therapy and psychotherapy is really just so so we're moving on and I'll get come back to this stuff and hopefully wrap it up so it makes complete sense to you. But psychotherapy is the therapy that I offer. Think of that word like psycho, like psychology, right? It's that that's the front part of the word. Psychotherapy is psychological based therapy. Whereas the term therapy could mean occupational therapy or physical therapy, right? There's a lot of different ways we use the term therapy. So there's no there's no real difference like between it, if you're talking about the same thing. But when it comes to those two words, that's really the difference. Now, if I said, oh, and I offer therapy in my practice, that's because I'm a, a mental health professional and I only offer psychotherapy. So you guys know when I talk about therapy, I'm talking about psychotherapy, right? So the words really are interchangeable. Psychotherapy is just more specific in the same way we would say like physical therapy, occupational therapy, stuff like that. Okay hope that makes sense. And then when someone struggles in a lot of different areas, this can get tricky, especially the areas that you mentioned. Now, autism itself is something that people in my field usually, like, just like I specialize in eating disorder treatment because I worked for years in treatment facilities of different levels, hospitals, inpatients, in a home, uh, outpatient day programs, IOPs, PHPs. I worked the whole gamut And that's why I call myself an eating disorder specialist. Autism, I feel, is very similar where someone can't just say, oh, yeah, I treat anxiety, depression, you know, uh, and autism, like unless they've been really trained. I do not personally specialize in autism and don't work with autistic patients unless they choose to work with me because, let's say, they have an eating disorder and that's what we're focused on. But if they're looking for things specific to their autism, I'm probably not the best fit. And so asking a therapist about their specializations and if they can treat or work with you and i'm not saying treat autism because again we all know it's it's not nothing's wrong with you it's just your brain works differently but see people need to know how to work with our brain right if we have adhd same thing we need to know how to work with not against our brain in the way that it works so autism's like that complex ptsd a trauma specialist is really key or at least a what i would call a trauma-informed therapist someone who gets it ocd um Anxiety disorders can sometimes overlap with that, but again, not everybody understands OCD, so it's important to ask what their training is. And an eating disorder, that's the whole reason my channel exists is because too many therapists don't understand. So we want to be very careful there and ask again how they, where their training is, how many years they worked in the field. Um, How many eating disorder patients roughly have they treated? Those are all questions you can easily ask and should be asking before, because you're hiring them. Think of it this way. You're hiring them to help you. And we want to make sure that when we're paying them for their time and spending our time there, we're getting the help that we need, you know? Um, Okay. So would a psychologist, so talking about all those different things, right? We had autism, CPTSD, OCD, eating disorder. Would a therapist be able to help in all areas? The short answer is yes. When it comes to mental health professionals, like I said at the beginning, it all comes down to our specialization and our training. And if that lines up with what we're struggling with, as well as I have to just say the biggest component when it comes to finding the right help is that we feel like they hear us and they understand us and they're on our side. Like that kind of connection that therapeutic click in the relationship that we can build with a therapist is what they find gives the best outcome. Meaning that all all the trainings and all the stuff in the world isn't going to help if we don't connect with them. So, you know, it's kind of a balancing act, but before we even come in to see them on the phone or via email we should ask to see their resume or ask where they got their training for whatever it is we're struggling with just to make sure that they're they're suited for us and that they actually can help okay so all those things so a therapist would be able to help and or would a psychologist be better suited because they had more education i'm going to tell you this and i know some people might disagree but Education in a classroom and school doesn't make you a better clinician. Experience in an office with a patient is what makes you a better clinician. And I'm here to tell you that social workers, licensed marriage and family therapists, psychologists, we all gather, at least in the state of California. I'm not sure about Texas yet. I haven't really dug into that as much. We all gather the same amount of clinical hours, 3,000. So really everybody's suited for your needs it just depends on again what their specialization is what trainings they've had what uh, facilities they've worked in and all of that stuff what uh continuing education courses they've taken that's what i would really dig into and the question if someone went to a trauma specialist would they be trained to help with their autism ocd eating disorders if they've been trained in that it all comes down to training which is why it's really important we ask our therapists before we see them what they're trained in and what they specialize in and then ask follow up questions well where did you do that training like if if anybody came into my office and asked like you know so you say you specialize in eating disorders okay where did you work or how why do you say you're an eating disorder specialist i'd have a whole gamut of stuff that i could talk to them about show them answer follow up questions you know all that stuff that because that's that's my niche right and I also for a long time I haven't I know I've talked about this before but I haven't re-upped my dialectical behavior therapy certificate you're supposed to do it every year I haven't done it in a couple years but I'm I was a certified DBT therapist and so people could ask for that I could show my credentials I could let them know the program that I took and how many hours I forget how many hours like 100 and something hours. anyway the trainings and I'd pull out all that paperwork for them or find it and show it to them next time you're free to ask any question like that to make sure that they really know how to help you and they have all the tools. And then the comment on top of this where it says the difference between a counseling psychologist and a clinical psychologist, there's no difference. I've actually never heard the term counseling psychologist. I've only heard clinical psychologist. When you use the term clinical, that really means that that psychologist sees patients in their office one-on-one. There's research-based psychologists and then there's clinical psychologists. And counseling. So I mean, I've never heard that term again, but I'd assume it's just another another way to say clinical psychologist. And then the difference between counseling and a therapy session. Now here's where things can get a little weird. People have used the term counselor very loosely over the years. A lot of people will call themselves a counselor when they have no, no degree And I'm not saying people can't counsel each other, but we have a lot of counseling that goes on in churches or at AA meetings. And those people are not licensed. They oftentimes don't have a psychology degree. I've actually never known one to have them, but they counsel in the area that they work in. A lot of times, especially in AA, I've had um, some patients that might have, you know, someone who counsels them, a counselor. At AA, that's like their sponsor or another part of that kind of program where they talk to them about issues or having someone that counsels them at uh, their church around things like that. Those people aren't necessarily licensed. The way to know is if they say they're a licensed professional c- counselor, and every state has something different. I think ours is LPCC in California, so it'd be licensed professional clinical counselor, right? So you want to make sure it's all about the credentials. So asking about what what they are what they can do what their degree is what they got their degrees in you know all that it's okay to ask that because people can use that term counselor very loosely which i know has been very frustrating for those of you out there who are licensed counselors because you're like hey i am actually legit went to school got the hours took the test and people just use it too loosely so just be clear and ask you know what their credentials are, because um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say about counselors is that I know I I know in the state of California and this was actually incorrect in my book. Are you okay? I got feedback from one of my old professors at Pepperdine University. She sent me an email that counselors cannot diagnose in the state of California as of you know 2018 slash 2019 when that book came out, and she was like, just so you know, you know they can't do that. So each state's going to have different rules around what they can and can't do. Now, someone says therapist or counselor, what's the right word to use? Depends on what their degree is. So a psychologist would be a psychologist. A therapist, meaning a licensed marriage and family therapist, is a therapist. A licensed clinical social worker is a social worker. And a licensed professional counselor is a counselor. However, people have called me therapist, counselor. Even some people call me a psychologist, and I always have to say, I I don't have those credentials. Um. But really, the right word to use depends on their license and their degree. I hope that wasn't too confusing. Again, I have a video all about this. I talk about it an entire chapter in my book, Are You Okay? I hope that clears it up at least a little bit. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This says, hey, hey, just a serious question or a curious question. Sorry. Curious question: If you, as a therapist, have seen a client for a long time, do you notice if he or she feels sadder in a therapy session than usual? <clears throat> Excuse me, that was a great question, and the short answer is yes. the The thing about seeing a patient for, and I don't even, I don't even want to say that it has to be a long time after. I mean, six months. I, I would have a good idea of what my client's baseline is. Now, if a client comes in and you're saying that to me that you've been feeling super, super depressed and, and that's where you're coming in at, I'm going to know that that baseline that I'm seeing is much lower than where you normally are because you're telling me you feel that way, right? Or if you're telling me you're more agitated, angry, anxious, I know you're more elevated than where you usually are. But as I get to know you and as we spend time together and as hopefully your symptoms are reducing, I'll start to see kind of like the what I call the real you come through, which is like the when th- when you're feeling okay and when your mental health is managed and taken care of, you hang out here. Therefore, if I've been seeing you, you come in each and every week and you're, you know, um, I'll give an example. I had this patient who was, and I've talked about this one before, but super, super anxious, also had an eating disorder, but she would sit barely like perched on the edge Of my couch almost like she i don't even know if she was fully sitting you guys it was like she was floating there and i had commented and i challenged her to like sit back you know for a period of time it was really hard and we worked on that but if she came in all of a sudden and like sat back into the couch pulled her legs up and like curled in like another one of my patients did and like pulled a blanket up on her i i would be very curious about that right like there's behavioral changes that you're you'll see in a patient there's also things they'll tell you but you're paying attention to all of that stuff so that you can say something and ask, especially because I, um, my specialty lies in like eating disorders and self-injury. I'm always paying attention to body language, clothing choices, hygiene. I want to make sure my patients are taking care of themselves and they're doing okay, not gaining or losing too much weight, not wearing all long sleeves, long pants in the summer. I'm always very suspicious of that. I mean, i are I was in la so it was always hot so that was always kind of suspicious um so i'd always ask about it so in short yes i would notice now i don't want to set anybody up for failure because not like therapists cannot read minds right it'd be um, extremely helpful if we could but we can't and so sometimes they may not notice some patients are super super good at hiding their symptoms and their behaviors I've had patients lie to me for months before like their uh, spouse or parent comes in and then I learn that that's not at all what I thought it was. So I don't want anybody to think that 100% of the time we're gonna read the signs and you don't have to say anything. I would challenge all of you, if you are in therapy, do your best to be as honest as possible. Therapy is not a place for judgment. If you're feeling bad or sad or mad or any of those things in between and around, try to let them know, hey, this week's been shit and I just need to say it. I'm not in a good mood. We don't expect you to be, you know, rose colored glasses all the time. It's okay to be bummed out. It's okay to be frustrated and it's okay to let your therapist know. It's better that we do that instead of just assuming that they're going to get it and they're going to know and we don't have to put language to it because they, we could guess wrong, right? We're human. We're only doing the best we can with what we know. So to remove all doubt, you know, let them know what's going on. Okay, let's get a drink of water and move on to question three. <clears throat> OK. Question three says, "Hi, Katie, What is the first thing that goes through your head or a therapist's head when a client starts to cry? And we have a few follow-ups. I think there's like three comments below this, but let's just dig into this first. So when when a, a client starts to cry, So if someone's in my office, it, first of all, it's very normal. I, I don't know if a day goes by where a patient doesn't cry in my office. Now, and if you guys notice, <clears throat> some people use the term client to describe a patient, and I use the term patient. It's really interchangeable. I've had patients in the past not like the term client because they said it sounds too businesslike, like they're a client of mine, like paying, you know, for for me to come and do something at their home, you know, it just feels like too casual. And so years ago, I just decided to use the term patient all the time because, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings or upset anyone. And it's easy change. So just know that client and patient can be interchangeably used. But the first thing that goes through my head when a client cries is truthfully, like, what caused this? If I know right away, like, oh, it's a specific topic or, um, you know, they've been telling me for weeks that they're feeling overwhelmed. And I guess we're at that point, the breaking point. Um, and then you know how can I use this information to help us better understand and take care of ourselves in the future and then also you know how can I support those are really the two main things is like trying to make sense of it and come to like figuring out where it came from crying's normal and healthy you guys by the way it's not a bad thing but as a therapist any kind of emotional response is like more information for us as we try to come up with tools or come up with subjects that we need to dig into to heal. It's it's just part of what we what we do, or rather what we pay attention to so that we can continue moving things forward, right? I want to pay attention to when your emotions or a particular emotion is overwhelming and dig into why that's happening and, and where that's coming from so that we can make sure it's okay, right? And it's coming from an okay, healthy place. So that's really it. Support, and how can we use this to better understand what we're going on, what we're going through and what's going on? Now, a comment on this said, um, essentially, like, what, what's the first thing that goes through my head when someone has a panic attack or starts dissociating badly, as in can't move, can't, uh, can't move, see or talk in session. <clears throat> uh, for me, in that, in that situation, it's, it's more about the support and getting you back. Now, I... I try my best, but I was trying to think, I've had a few situations where it didn't. I didn't know ahead of time. Like in the first one or two sessions, a patient dissociated, and I, I don't think I'd ask them quickly enough so we could put together a plan for bringing them back. But usually I do my best to ask about panic attacks, dissociation, uh, if there's certain triggers they already know of. I try to get that stuff out early, just because I've learned over time that that ends up serving us better, right? Because if something's going to happen and I need to know how to bring you back. I need to know what's okay and not okay. And everybody's different. So it's not something that I can just like blanket do to all my patients. I need to make sure that for you specifically, you're okay with me doing X, Y, or Z to help calm you down or bring you back. And everybody has different requests. So there's that component. So for me, a lot of times um, I'll try to make eye contact. My dissociation parent, patients will like often like fight me on that. But my panic attack patients don't always. There, they're, I can get in their eye line sometimes and hold it, and that can be a way to to calm down. I can, I can breathe with them, and just by making eye contact and doing that together, that can be calming. But really, what's running through my head? The first thing that goes in my head is like, how can we help? How can I get? How can we get this uh, to move on faster? How can I bring you back? How can I calm you down? Um, and if I don't have anything <clears throat> pre-planned then I'm writing in my notes, come up with plan for panic attacks or dissociation. We need to have a plan in place and something that we can implement easily. Um, You know, that would be my next to do. Because it helps, it's bound to happen. Therapy is challenging. There's going to be those times even when our resilience is low, meaning we're more vulnerable to panic attacks or dissociation. And the therapist is going to push us because that's our job and we're going to struggle. And so all in all, yeah, just how can, how can I help? And then the next question said to add on, I am super afraid of my therap that my therapist will be judging internally as I withdraw into a childlike, you know, hugging myself and crying. And the next moment I dissociate like crazy or that I cut, oh, I cut myself. Gotcha. Therapy is not a place for judgment. It's a place for exploration and understanding. And when it comes to things like that, know that we've seen it all. I've had patients, uh, I talked about a patient of mine that came in and just laid on the floor and was like, this has been the worst week ever. We've had patients curl in balls and cry. I've had patients want to play with toys when they're full grown adults. There's no judgment in therapy. It's a place for you to explore and make sense of what you're feeling and what you're going through. And a therapist's job is really to be curious, not judgmental. And help us both better understand what's going on so that we can either you know soothe manage the symptoms or find tools and techniques and ways to better cope so it's all that stuff so it's okay for you to feel like a child and want to curl into a ball and cry maybe rocking yourself i even have patients who aren't autistic do what we would initially think of as like stemming behavior like rocking yourself or, um, you know, tapping, like there's things that people with autism can do to kind of soothe. Um, it was actually adorable. You guys, I I don't know if this is where it comes from, but my therapist brain went right to it. But when we picked up our puppy Roxy and we're bringing her home, of course she's terrified, right? She's like, who the hell are you? Then we had like her little travel crate and her bed and I put some toys in there and you know, we're doing our best to get her situated and put her in the thing. And we've had the, she was, all of the seats in the back were down. We have a little SUV. And so she was sitting so she could see us. And Sean was talking to her and I was driving and she cried a little. And then she started rocking herself. And I was like, oh baby. But she was doing it probably to soothe, I would assume. Anyway, broke my heart, but you know, she hasn't done it since and hopefully she's okay. But She knows that. Hopefully, she knows she's in her forever home. That this isn't just some temporary living situation. Um. Anyways, I digress. Let's move on. Now, the next question. It's the same. It's like a comment below that same question says, "Yes, this. I've wanted to learn how to cry in front of people for so long, and it seemed like therapy would be a good place to do this. But even when I feel the urge, I still couldn't. What does a therapist think? But additionally, how do I allow myself to cry in session? Now." I've talked about this in videos. You can actually search on YouTube, Katie Morton Cry in Session or Crying in Therapy. And we don't think anything. It's very normal, just like it's normal for people to cry and not be able to hold it together at all because, spoilers, you don't have to hold it together in therapy. It's also super normal for my patients to like swallow... stick it down, pretend it's okay. I've had patients eyes get super watery and then they like swallow deeply and don't cry. And I'll just draw their attention to it. I'm like, I've noticed that when, you you know, you get overwhelmed and seem to be overcome with sadness, you're not allowing yourself to cry. You you swallow really deeply. Do you you feel that? Do you notice? And then I probably also asked, you tend to get sore throats a lot because when we swallow as a way to stuff feelings, that's usually where we hold all of that emotional. I know people might be like, "Katie, that's woo woo," but it's true. That's where we hold it. I used to have a patient do this, like pull her shoulders her, up to her ears, and I would always ask, like, "Does your neck hurt a lot at night and in the morning?" She'd be like, "Yeah, it's horrible." And I was like, "Hmm, it's holding her emotion there." Um, a lot of people hold it, you know, in their low back or their hips. Uh, in yoga, we always talk about stretching the hips can release some of that aggression and frustration, but you know, again, I know it's a little woo woo, but I believe it a little bit. So I, I just draw their attention and I'm curious and want them to notice it as well so that it doesn't happen so mindlessly all the time. Um, yeah. And that's, that's really it. Just helping to understand because I don't see it in, any different than crying every time we go to therapy and then not allowing ourselves to cry. They're both representations of how we've coped in life and what's going on. And we just want to dig into both and be uh, be more curious and learn more about it, I guess. And then how do you allow yourself to cry in session? The truth about it is it's all in the understanding why we can't. We can't just all of a sudden expect ourselves to stop doing that swallowing, right? If we've been stuffing our emotions down for decades, we can't expect to walk into therapy and be like, okay, here goes, and just let it all out. We're, we got our defenses up and we have to figure out what, A, what triggers those, or B, and kind of more importantly in therapy, it's like, what can we do to soothe it so it feels okay? Um, And that's going to take some exploration with your therapist. You have to be honest about what goes through your head before you shut it down. And if you know, right, we might have to learn ways to tap in. We might have to tap in like way, way back from that experience and see what led up to that shutdown. But all in all, therapy is like a great place. Again, like I said earlier, like exploration and understanding and the inability to cry is all part of that. And we'll learn more as we're more honest with ourselves about where we are and what we're going through and all that stuff. And the final comment on this says or for a client who cries and stops it as quickly as possible, oops, swallow it down. My therapist gets frustrated that I try to and, that I tried to stop crying and wants me to let it all out, but I can't. Again, figure out where that why that defense mechanism has been triggered. Something has caused it to like flip the switch and we're like, "Oh, shut it down, right? Swallow it deep or tighten it up." put it somewhere else. I've had patients get stomach aches even after sessions because they feel like they're like stuffing everything in there. So just pay attention to what triggers this or what are the thoughts in your head that tell you it's not safe to cry? I've had patients years and years over and over, probably hundreds of times I've asked people to write about what it would mean if they cried. What does it say about them? What's the meaning behind crying? What are you afraid someone's going to think someone's going to say? What is that? Let's let's be curious about it again, because you're stopping it for a reason. You, you must think that it makes you, I don't know, if I've heard everything, it makes me stupid, it means I'm weak, it makes me vulnerable, it means I'll get hurt again. There's any m- number of millions and millions of possible reasons, but what's your reason? Why are we stuffing it down? Why are we shutting it down? Why when our body needs that release? Because if you don't know, Crying, much like laughing or even shouting, releases different chemicals in our brain and our body, and it feels good. <sighs> so it's like cathartic. It really just lets our body get it out. That's why it wants to do it. So your urge to shut it down has to come from somewhere. It's not coming from your body, it's coming from your brain. So, what is your brain telling your body, and why is it telling you to do that? you know, be curious. And I'm sorry your therapist seems frustrated. I hope they're not really frustrated. I hope it's more just them saying, I notice you're doing that again. Why aren't you letting it out? I hope that that's more the conversation because again, therapy is not a place for judgment. It's just a place to start noticing so that we can stop doing the things that we don't want to do anymore and be more emotionally intelligent, be able to tap in and say, you know what, today I feel frustrated because X, Y, or Z, right? And I'm kind of tired because that wears on me, right? I want us all to be able to meet ourselves there and be able to speak about what we're really feeling and going through. And hopefully that's what your therapist is wanting to and isn't frustrated. Okay, I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, I hope you're having a great week. So far, so good. Um, I got sick a while ago and was in the hospital for a few weeks. I'm so sorry. A few weeks. That must be super, super serious. Hope you're okay. Ever since then, I've been missing and craving the kindness and attention I received from nurses and doctors while there. I've never experienced anything like this. I have social anxiety and usually don't want attention at all. But I'm having thoughts of actually wanting bad things to happen to me because I um, I want that feeling back. Not only that, but I've loved every aspect of being in the hospital. No responsibilities, sleeping all the time, pain meds. This is so messed up. What is wrong with me? Why would this happen? And how can I make it go away? Okay, first of all, you're not messed up. Nothing's wrong with you. This is very normal. So let's let's just break this down. Now, having social anxiety doesn't mean that we don't want attention it means that we don't want attention from people that we don't know and trust because we don't feel safe, right? Social anxiety is this constant worry that we're going to embarrass ourselves and not be able to like get out of the situation. People are going to be laughing. It's that intense worry, right, about social situations. But we're all human, and we all need attention. I don't know why we put such a. a Bad, like, stain on the word attention. Oh, you're attention seeking. Uh, duh. Everybody seeks attention. We're human. We need attention. We need affection, compassion, understanding, and attention from people in our lives. We are social creatures. I know many people are like, I don't actually like being around people, probably because you were traumatized. I'm not trying to like minimize that in any way. That's a big fucking deal. I'm just saying, Everybody needs attention. It's okay. It's a basic human need. Think of being a baby. Babies need a shitload of attention. We can't do much for ourselves and we need someone to soothe us because we don't know how to do it without them. That's okay. We're adults and we still need that. I need to be consoled. Sometimes I'm having a really rough day. I just want to hug Sean and just cry about it. And that's just what I do. Sometimes I want to call my mom or my grandma because I need their like sage advice. And I also just need them to like, oh, listen to me while I vent and give me some grounding, right? Because they're like, you know, they always call me stomper. I used to stomp my feet as a little kid and it's never left. And I'm even though I'm 38, well, I'll be 38 next week. Um, they'll say stomp, you know, it's not the end of the world or you're better than that or stomp. I'm so sorry that you're feeling, you know, or they'll call me sis too. I don't know why, but called sis sometimes too. Anyway, um, nothing's wrong with you. My hypothesis about this need and the want to be back in the hospital is because that's what you really have been craving for a long time and just never really recognized it. Now, I'm I'd be suspicious about maybe your parents being emotionally neglectful or not meeting you where you're at, like not giving you what you needed. Parents can be good on paper, right? They can put a roof over our head and feed us and and take us to a good school and, you know, do all the things that a parents like supposed to do. But when it comes to the emotional support, like sitting with us while we cry or listening to us while we vent, mm -mm, they don't do that. And they maybe tell us just to suck it up buttercup. And so not getting that care and that attention and that love can leave a hole inside. And if we don't fill it ourselves through work and therapy and doing the inner child work and some of that self-soothing techniques and things like that, then we're going to seek it out in other ways. And I'm not saying that you sought this out, this happened, and then you're like, wow, that feels so good. That need that I didn't even recognize that I I had was finally soothed and I feel so much better. And that's just part of you being human, but I would just encourage you to bring this up in therapy and try to figure out where this comes from. I'm making some guesses here, but I want you to do your own work and figure out what it means for you. And then work, work to heal it, work to figure out another way to soothe that system. Because That's why this craving is so intense is because it's something that you've needed and we got it and now it was taken away. And so we have to find a way to give it to ourselves all the time. And I'm here to tell you, it's not in the hospital. It's in your own relationship with yourself and those that you, you love who are around you. So yeah. And then there's a comment on this says as an add-on, since I feel like it's related, my question is, what can it mean if as a child you wanted to play sick in role play? I remember that I used to do this as a kid, and these are memories that are somehow very shameful to me. I never spoke about this so far, but it's in my mind often. And I used to say things to my friends like, okay, let's play that I'm sick and you have to call an ambulance. Or even alone, I played that I would have surgery. What can this mean? Thanks for everything you're doing. Now, my hypothesis here would be kind of similar, and it is very related to the question, by the way. Similar to what I just mentioned, I would wonder if maybe you only got the love and affection that you needed from your parents or whoever your primary caregivers were when you were sick or when you needed to go to the doctor. And or maybe you had a a family member, like maybe your brother or sister had surgery and then they got a lot of attention or they got sick and then they got more attention it has a lot to do with whatever you not getting those needs met when you were younger and getting them when those things were happening hence why you want to role play that because you wanted to be sick so that you could get that love and attention that you so desperately need and crave and again it's a, it's totally normal and acceptable to need and crave those things okay it's part of the human condition now there was a comment on um after this this is the last comment says Yes, I kind of feel this way too. I was in the hospital a year ago due to depression, and even though I was very lonely, I still liked the little care that I got from the people working there and looking back to this time as being better than it actually was. Sometimes I consider committing myself to a mental hospital for a longer time period because even though it's been a year since my last quote unquote real depressive episode, I've experienced some depressive symptoms on and off over the year and recently some trauma symptoms. Also, I like the thought of just being able to try to work on myself and focus on getting better. That's completely fine and normal. I mean, it's all normal, but that's a healthy way to look at it. I feel like being in the hospital again would mean being around people who care for me and are there for me uh, when I need them rather than feeling lonely all the time, even in the presence of people where you always have to pretend. How can I distinguish between possibly benefiting or actually benefiting from being treated in a hospital or just wanting to because I enjoy the care, attention, and or affection? Now, it really comes down to the being honest with yourself about the situation. Now, it sounds like your time in the hospital wasn't actually great. I could be wrong, but you said, you know, you're, you almost like are rose colored glassing this situation, looking back and saying, oh, that was so nice. And then like the logical part of your brain was like, it actually wasn't, you know, being honest with yourself about that situation, what it was like, was it really helpful when you came out? Did you feel better? All of that is really key in this decision-making. And I would just encourage you to be honest with yourself and consider if the hospital is the only way for you to get better, are there other options we could try out or take? Like, I'd be interested in like a day program or maybe more intensive therapy. Maybe we add in a group therapy session or something like that each week. Um, or, and honestly, even as I say this, you guys, if it's just because you enjoy the care and attention and affection, that's okay. Okay. I would just encourage you to talk about this specific issue in your therapy now. Sure, we may wanna be treated in a hospital and we may need that extra support and we may need the removal of life stressors in order to get better. But I also just have to mention that that the needing of attention and affection could be born out of trauma and that emotional neglect maybe you sustained as a child. Or the fact that maybe you only got affection and attention in the way that you needed when you were in that hospital. Or You know, I don't know where it's coming from. Again, going back to what I said at the beginning, it's important for us to figure out where this urge and craving is coming from. And it's not in a judgmental way. We have to figure out where that hole in our emotional self is so that we can stop trying to fill it with things that aren't maybe necessarily helpful. Now, in this case, going to the hospital to get treatment could be totally helpful. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be. I just am sure my hypothesis, I I, I give myself like 99% sure that there are other parts of your life where this is playing out, meaning that maybe, you know, we need attention and affection from a lot of different people, or we need a lot of outside validation, or maybe, you know, we feel like we need so much attention and affection, we end up pushing everybody else away because it it kind of the shame associated with that need comes up because of trauma or whatever happened in our life. We just have to figure out where this is coming from for us so that we can work to make it better and we can heal so that we can overcome it. And that's, that's really where it's at because it, it, it might be, the truth might be that we aren't able to distinguish the difference before going into the hospital, but it might be something we want to work on when we are in the hospital or in our outpatient therapy because, you know, we all have needs and that's okay. We set to figure out why we have this such a deep, deep craving for it. Okay, question number five it says, happy day to you. Happy day to you. How can I stop myself from being annoyed by little things out of my control? Often I get upset about unreasonable stuff like people talking in a car, waking up 15 minutes late even when I can afford to or shops not having what I want, etc." And I've been trying to not, I've been trying not to blast off, but it results in me upsetting myself even more. Interesting. My therapist told me I seem to struggle with magnification. That's your defense mechanism Mm -hmm. or your cognitive distortion, as they would call it. And no matter how much I try to counter it, I've tried the 15 minute shake. It just doesn't work. The the frustration often triggers thoughts of harm. And it's not fun considering that I work myself up, up over almost nothing. Is there a reason random stuff triggers me so fast and what can I do to minimize the effect? I love this question. And there was actually a comment below this talking about um, your window of tolerance and I want to dig in there because that's a lot of what we deal with in uh, dbt or dialectical behavior therapy i would encourage you to pick up the dbt workbook i have it in my amazon shop if you go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash katie morton you'll find it in there uh, i want to say it's like fifteen dollars or something totally worth the money maybe 20. but distress tolerance is going to be your friend and we're going to have to figure out uh, it's so there's a few components of DBT, and you'll see why it kind of builds up to distress tolerance. But the first is the mindfulness component. And I want you to try to pay attention to, you know, maybe the situations. I don't know if we have answers here again. I'm just I'm just throwing out some thoughts I have and some questions I have. Are there certain people, places, things like, are there any specifics that always set us off? I'd be very curious about that. Any certain triggers we can always identify and there's patterns. I'd be curious about that that's kind of more of that mindfulness. Also, I would be more curious about your own self-care. You know how I always talk about the halt? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Are we feeling any of those things? Like, are you sleeping well? Are you feeding yourself well? Have you been super, super lonely? Are you feeling, I mean, obviously you're feeling angry, but I we have to check in with those things because if we don't take care of of our basic needs like or do you have a physical illness the the full acronym so there's HALT which is one of the acronyms in dbt for this kind of self-care stuff but there's also one I talk about it in my my new book traumatizes abcs please is the acronym and essentially it's like it's HALT plus like taking care of a physical illness making sure that we're um you know making time for breaks it's just I don't want to get into it too much and go through like all of the, the all of it because it's a lot of it's a lot it's a long acronym but you know we want to like accumulate positive emotions and Uh, build mastery and, you know, cope ahead of time. I've talked about that. And that's kind of that halt where it comes in, where we want to do something so that we're prepared, not as vulnerable to our emotions later on. Um, But then, you know, making sure we're eating enough, avoiding drugs, making sure we're getting enough sleep, getting exercise, all that stuff. So that's kind of the ABCs please component. And I, I bring that up because I wonder if you are taking care of your basic needs. And maybe if you're not, that could be why we're so vulnerable to this anger and frustration. I can speak personally that if I haven't, eaten well or slept well, you don't want to be around me. I'm nobody you want to be around. I'm grouchy. I'm on edge. I'm short-tempered. I don't have any patience. It's just not good. So I wonder if that's happening. And all of these things that I'm talking about, like the the building mastery component, which is like where we, we work on one thing. Let's say we just learned to play guitar and we only play a few chords. Can we like work at that and get a little bit better until we feel a little more confident? Or maybe we want to master a recipe or we want to um, get better at a video game or something like that. We work to get better. We build mastery on something that can make us feel better accumulating positive emotions, like doing things that feel good for us. It's kind of like basic self-care. If we're doing all these things that are taking, like eating well, sleeping well, you know, blah, 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 doing some exercise, all of that builds up a bigger window of tolerance. So like if we're talking about a window, it's like your window's like almost closed and the blinds are like, maybe the blinds are closed and the window's open like just a little titch. This is gonna open our window bigger and bigger so that we actually have more more resilience built up, more space for us to tolerate what life throws at us. We're building that resilience or that window of tolerance we could call is really our resilience. And so those are really my, that's my feedback for you. Those are my ideas. I I know the 15 minute shake probably didn't work because we still aren't really feeling good and we're still vulnerable to our emotions. So let's, let's try some of this other stuff and see see if that can work. And then also another thing that thought just popped in my head is maybe we try to, like we'd use like some thought stopping or some other distraction technique to kind of pull our brain away into something else so that we don't focus so much. Because if magnification is your number one, uh, you know, go-to way to deal with things, then maybe we try to focus on something else like pull our brain into our favorite memory or anything we can do to to stop that defense mechanism or whatever you want to call it from coming up, right? Because we all have those, those knee-jerk reactions, the black and white thinking, you know, the magnification. Some of us will use humor or use logical thinking to, you know, make it not a big deal. Whatever it is that we do to like cope, unhealthfully, we're, we're going to have to, you know, pay attention to it and try our best to build up other things so that it doesn't take over our life. And sometimes distraction is good, which is like that thought stopping, like, let's take our mind somewhere else. I hope that makes sense. And I hope that that's helpful. Keep me posted. There was a comment on this says, I totally get this. I suffered from CEN and I, uh, bleh, and I suppressed feelings around my uh, mother because she was mentally ill. Um, Oh, and C, and sorry, I didn't even uh, tell you what that means. That's childhood emotional neglect is what I'd assume. So suppressed feelings around my mother because she was mentally ill and couldn't be and could be emotionally abusive. I almost prided myself on not getting riled up about little things, but because I am extremely perfectionistic, not sure whether or not I have um, OCPD, which would be um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. If you don't know, OCD itself is something that is what they call ego dystonic, meaning we don't like it and it doesn't feel good, and we like want it to stop. OCPD is when it does feel good. We actually enjoy the doing those things, doing the obsessions and compulsions, and it, it feels very good to us to do it. So we want to keep doing it. It says, many uh, things really irk me. If things aren't just right, I can feel hopeless and empty. I have basically always suppressed my anger. By April 2021, I was rocking on the sofa, which I think was anger trying to get out and me trying to resist its expression. Wow, yeah. So I think I need to learn to express, express anger in a healthy way, but I have no idea how to do that. Do you have any advice, Katie? I actually have a video all about anger and how we can use anger in a healthy way. There's also a, a book, uh, what's it called? I'll have to look it up. There's a book that um, my friend Ingrid Nielsen years ago had told me about. I'm just going to see if I can Google search anger book, but oh, The Dance of Anger. Um and then there was another one She loved the dance of anger. Now I have purchased it and read through some of it. Some of it I like, some of it I didn't like, but I'm just putting it out there cuz it could be really helpful. Oh, and then the anger workbook I utilize, but it's a little more with a therapist and it can even be kind of childish in some ways, but um the the anger workbook can be really good. And then Oh, I read The Explosive Child. Anyway, I was looking for more but I I can't um I can't find it right now. But anyways, when it comes to anger, th- we have to become friends with it. Is stuffing it down and letting it like hurt us from the inside because anger in us can be so dangerous. And clearly your way of coping with your world being out of control because your mother had a mental illness and was emotionally abusive was to stuff things down and control what you could, which was your environment or yourself. And so you controlled yourself by not expressing anger and you like everything just so. Because if everything is just so, then that's one less thing to make me crazy and make me feel out of control, right? And so we did all of that to kind of like stuff it down and move forward. And so things that could be helpful for you could be finding like an angry playlist and putting it on and screaming at the top of your lungs or going to one of those rage rooms. I, Sean and I've actually both been really wanting to go to one of those where you just like break stuff. I think you pay like 20 bucks and you go in and you just break a bunch of stuff. Look up rage rooms in your area and see if you, you know, could make a time to go there and do that. That could be really helpful. Also, I think for me, even because I've talked about my own therapy a lot, you know, and part of the work that I did because of I was a people pleaser, a lot of that had to do with me stuffing down my anger and putting other people first, right? And so I was so angry. And I used to, like when I would go out with my friends in my early 20s and like have a couple drinks, I would get like angry because what soberness uh, conceals, drunkenness reveals and my anger would come out and it became something that was really unhealthy and embarrassing to be quite frank. And I had, I was like in therapy twice a week for a while because I was like, what is going on? And she was like, you've never felt safe to express your anger. And I did a lot of work writing about what anger felt like to me and what it meant to me. Spoilers. I thought it was out of control and it meant I was a bad person. So she had to help me challenge some of those like false beliefs, right? Because anger isn't a bad thing. Anger is actually protective. And I'm very thankful for my anger. It tells me a lot of things. Anger tells me when someone's overstepped boundaries, it tells me when I've been hurt. It tells me when I need to speak up, right? It's so informative. And so instead of stuffing it down and ignoring it and putting myself in other unhealthy and unhelpful situations. I need to recognize it and acknowledge it and let it be because it's actually really helpful. So anyway, learning about your anger. I did some collages that was really helpful. I put on the music and screamed. I screamed into pillows a lot. I used to just also um, go and kick a ball into a wall back in Santa Monica. There was this local high school that had, you know, they'd leave their like track and field area open and you could go and play in there. And so I would, I would do that. And it was like a way to get the anger out. Um, For a while there, when I was younger, I was like going on, I was going running, not very healthy. So I had to stop that. But anyways, hopefully that gives you a little, a few ideas and also just get on YouTube and put in Katie Morton anger and my videos on it will come up and I have more tools and tips and techniques in there as well. Okay. Now, um... The next comment says, and how do you deal with being unstable in general? Not really irritable, but being more sensitive to being triggered by something small. For the last two years, I've been quite emotionally unstable and nothing seems to help. I've been in therapy for two years now and it has helped in general, but my mood hasn't stabilized. I usually experience depressive symptoms for a few hours a day. And on most days in the last two months, trauma symptoms come up too. And my suicidal ideation is back. Sometimes just little things trigger a depressed mood or make me feel overwhelmed. Medication helped a little in the past, but the side effects were bad. What are possible causes for being emotionally unstable for a longer period of time? I have some ideas. Is it possible that growing up in an unstable environment has caused me to be unstable as well? My mother is chronically depressed and has always been very unstable, easily triggered due to some serious emotional issues. And two years ago, my older sister got diagnosed with bipolar 1. And even though I'm not bipolar, I haven't been stable since then. I grew up in a big family and it was always a little chaotic at times even, and, and at times even abusive. For the last few years, I feel like I'm racing from one crisis to another. How can you uphold a stable mood when your family life around you is everything but steady and consistent and constant? Moving out has helped a little, but I haven't been able to really enjoy my life for some time now. Sometimes things are fine for a few weeks, but then another bomb is dropping and I haven't been able to really breathe or have a break from constant drama and stress. Is there anything I can do to deal with these intense emotions and mood swings? Will it ever get better? Now there's a couple of things. My first suspicion is borderline personality disorder. For any of you who have borderline, you know just how sensitive we can become to everything and we can feel very dysregulated. I think that's the best way to describe it everything seems super painful. We, and I don't know, again, you didn't say anything about attachment or feeling like people are going to abandon you. Just be honest. If that is if that is part of this, where it's like, you'd rather leave people before they leave you, or you worry a lot about your relationships and you don't have, feel like you have a good sense of self. You can be really impulsive. Have you urge, Have urges to self-injure. Like those are all kinds of components that we can find when we have borderline. And that's like, one thought I had. Like, if you were in my office, I would ask some questions about that so we could see if that resonates with you. Also, moving out has probably helped. And it might be helpful for you to distance yourself from your family because my guess is that if it's not borderline, then you are the only one that people lean on, meaning everybody's leaning on you to fix things and make it better. And you are not the person because you're up one person and they need they need professionals. Um, and then that's why you probably feel like you're running from thing to thing. And go back to the question earlier where somebody was asking about you know, feeling angry all the time. If you're not taking care of yourself and your basic needs, if we're not doing those things, the ABCs, please, and the halts, then of course you're going to feel like totally discombobulated and dysregulated constantly because you have no resilience. You don't take care of yourself because you put other people first, um, which might be due to your trauma. Maybe we're in that fawn mode, you know, that fight, flight, freeze fawn video I had that came out a while ago. I wonder if that's part of it. Um, Either way, those are just like I'm throwing things out to see what resonates and sticks with you. But get yourself some therapy, get yourself some support, because we need to put some healthy boundaries in place. And yes, it will get better, but we have to figure out, you know, what's going on and why we're feeling the way we feel and be honest with ourselves about where we're at so that we can, you know, identify and then treat. And yeah, it does get better. Okay, let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, did you have a favorite patient that you were seeing? I guess you're not supposed to have favorites, but I, favorites. But I imagine it's hard not to like some patients more than others. Also, I want my therapist to like me the most, and I wish she would tell me that I'm her favorite, or that I'm more important to her, and that her other or and her other patients, and she thinks of me when we don't have sessions. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's part of that attachment. And I, I I would be suspicious of borderline personality disorder here. And also just maybe having emotionally neglectful or abusive parents, especially a mother and wanting your therapist to kind of fill that role. So it's not wrong. It's just kind of part of why you're in therapy to begin with. And I would let your therapist know that you're having these thoughts. I know it seems embarrassing and shameful, but trust me when I tell you, we hear things like this all the time. I've heard things from they want me to be their mom or their sister or their best friend or they have a crush on me, all sorts of things. And it doesn't actually have anything to do with me. It's more about what's happening in their life for them and what this, this healthy therapeutic relationship is doing for, you know, like in their mind, because they haven't had a healthy relationship maybe ever. This healthy relationship is stirring all of that up, if that makes sense. And so bring it up in therapy and figure out where it's coming for you. Like coming from for you, so that we can work to feel better. And no, I don't have a favorite patient. I have patients who I get really excited with because they're doing well and things are improving, and I'm so proud of them. And it's a privilege to get to be a part of it. And I have patients who are really struggling, and it's more of a challenge. But there's nobody that is my favorite. Um, yeah, they're all just different and wonderful in their own way, and I just am so glad that I get to be a part of it. I know that's not the answer that you want, but that's the truth. And being a therapist yeah, you don't, you just don't have favorites. I have had a patient, I've told you guys threaten me and scare me before. So that definitely wasn't someone that I wanted to see again, but that had nothing to do with anything other than, you know, her raging out. Okay. There was a comment on this. It said, my question is along these same lines. My former therapist who passed away nine months ago used to tell me quite a bit how special I was to her. That's a boundary crossing. And even when she had to stop her practice because of the her of the progression of her cancer, she didn't want to stop talking to me and told me that I was at the top of her list and that I was like family to her. Very unprofessional and very unethical. This of course made me feel super special and cared for, but at the same time made it very traumatic losing her when she died. I know it's because she overstepped boundaries and that's not healthy. And then of course it made it even harder than it maybe already would have been. When she passed, I found myself not wanting any connection with the therapist I started seeing after her passing, of course, to protect herself. And I eventually stopped seeing that therapist because I didn't believe that she was able to help me. I've since found a therapist that I connected with during our first session. She did a PTSD assessment on me and wants to focus on my past traumas, which I believe to be very useful. I agree. However, I'm finding myself struggling, not wanting to get too close to her and fearing any connection. She has said to me that she that we have things in common and while I concur it makes me feel very anxious. She has asked me if I want to see her on a weekly basis and has left it up to me to decide. Even though I know that that would be very beneficial for me right now, I'm afraid to tell her. I'm so um I'm so not sure what to do or how to stop the anxiety. These feelings are the anxiety that these feelings are bringing up for me or how to even tell my new therapist. I feel so broken. Any insights you can give me would be greatly appreciated. It sounds like your therapist overstepped the boundaries and you essentially didn't have a healthy therapeutic relationship. That's not to say that it didn't feel healthy and connected for you. But what I'm here to tell you is, is that's not how therapeutic relationships work. You're not like family. You don't know everything about that person. They shouldn't be calling you all the time, especially when they've stopped their practice. It's just very unhealthy. And I know it's hard for people to understand, but the the thing that makes therapy so wonderful and healing is the fact that it's it's different and that we have these boundaries that keep us safe, that allow us to share what maybe we wouldn't share with anybody else because we feel like that relationship can withstand it. Because we don't know anything about the other person. We just know they can hold the space for us to dump all of our ick into. And the fact that she showed up like a, a mother or a family member took that all away and made it like every other relationship, or maybe a relationship you'd craved forever, which instead of helping you heal and deal with the fact that you didn't have that kind of relationship in your life and be able to identify where that's coming from, she tried to fill it with that, with the relationship you had with her, which then of course, because therapy doesn't last forever. And and unfortunately she was ill and passed away. Now you're left with that gaping hole again. And that it was a trauma. Um, and I'm sorry for your loss, and I hate that she did that to you. So my my feedback and my my thoughts are really to let your therapist know if you have to write it down and bring it in, let your therapist know about this because this is a real trauma. and talk about grief, and I know that grief is really palp, like it's pal- palpable in your life. It's everywhere, right? It's just, oh, and I want you to have a safe place to talk about it. And I would let your th- letting your therapist know will ensure that the healthy boundaries are upheld, and it will also ensure that you get the time that you need and the space to heal from that loss. Because ugh, I'm sorry that your therapist did that to you. and I'm sorry that she overstepped boundaries as much as she did. That's just totally inappropriate. And I'm, I'm so sorry. Now, the final comment on this is as a follow up question. If you don't have, quote, unquote, favorites, do you have patients that you just connect with more than others? Maybe because something about them or their story reminds you of yourself and you can relate to them? Or do some personalities just click more with yours? I definitely say that there will be patients that I feel will be a good fit for me more quickly than others. And maybe it's because there's some, it's not even reminds me of them or relates to me. It's nice. it's like, oh, this is right in my wheelhouse. And I can kind of already see the patterns really easily because I've treated many people very similarly to them. That will do it. Um, honestly, yeah, that's probably it. And then maybe if there's some, if they're like more like me, where they're a little anxious and more of a people pleaser, I might notice those things quickly and and be more, you know, I don't know, not quick to, to do it or to fix it, but like I might recognize that more easily and then be able to work with them more quickly on it. So yeah, maybe there is a little bit of that where something, some part of them uh, will remind me of me and then I'll find myself, you know, thinking, oh, this will be a good fit. So yeah, I could definitely say that, but they're definitely not favorites. It's more just like some people, you know, more easily, you know, more quickly that it's going to be a good fit but it's really up to them, right? It's not up to me. So if they're, I've had patients over the years that I was like, oh, this will be a good fit. And they're like, can you give me some referrals? And I'm like, okay. You know, and again, it's not, I'm not offended. It's not about me. It's about them. And I want them to get the best help. And I want them to feel connected to the therapist. And if it's not me, I want to make sure I give them other good referrals. Okay let's move on to question number seven. And it says, Hey, Katie, a little while ago, I was crying on the floor, just completely lost my ability to feel any emotions for about 15 hours, where it eventually slowly came back. It felt like losing a sense. And I'm really confused by it. And I didn't like it. Do you know what may have happened uh, to cause this to happen? Thanks. Now, 15 hours. I wonder, I mean, crying on the floor. I wonder if it was dissociation or maybe a panic attack. the The fact that it lasted for so long and you lost your ability to feel any emotions, I my knee jerk reaction is dissociation. And the reason that I am so drawn to that and think that is what's went, what happened here is because fifteen hours is a really long time to be in panic. 15 hours is a really long time to feel disconnected. And the only thing that I ever know of to do that so quickly and for so long is dissociation. And if any of you out there are like, what's dissociation? It's when our nervous system becomes completely overwhelmed by what's going on that it like pulls the ripcord. Ah! And it pulls us out of either self or environment. Now, I don't know how if you felt like far away or just spaced out or just completely disconnected, but everyone's experience is different. And I really like to think of dissociation on like a spectrum. So, Yours could have been just like feeling disconnected, or it could have been all the way where you feel like you're watching yourself in a movie go through your life. So yeah, I mean, it's just because you got overwhelmed, your nervous system was overwhelmed and you you couldn't, our brain pulls the ripcord and causes dissociation as a way to keep us okay and keep us alive so that we don't harm ourselves or, you know, maybe even have memories of something that was really, really tragic and difficult. It can pull us out just to help us continue going forward. Um, But let your therapist know this happened, okay? Because there are grounding techniques and things we can do to help bring ourselves back or help notice when it's happening before it happens. Um, So we just want to be more aware and the more we can learn, the better. Now, there was a comment on this, that it says, to add on to this, I've been experiencing this for several months now. I'm wondering if this can be a trauma response or maybe just a sort of dissociation because the system is overwhelmed. And how can I make it come back online? Yes, it's probably a trauma response and part of dissociation. You have to try some things out, whether that's like rubber bands on the wrists, holding ice cubes. Maybe there are some other things that we can try, like, um, counting colors, like how many things in the room are blue, or if we go through our ABCs and what in the room starts with A, you know what in the room starts with B, and going through all of the letters, it can, it can pull us back. Now I know sometimes it can be hard, but if we catch it, the earlier we catch it, like if it's just happening right before it happens, the more easy it is to stay grounded. And the farther we've been away, or the longer we've been away, it can be a little bit harder. So give yourself an opportunity to to try some of those things out. Changing temperature can really help too, like be going outside if it's cold or hot. Um, Getting in a cold shower can sometimes help too. Um, that Those are all just ideas to help us get it back online. And there was another uh, question that says, I can completely relate to your situation. I experience bouts of sadness. After that, I can't experience any other emotion or happy or sad for almost a day. Also, I can't remember all of the events that happened during that particular time. Is this dissociation? I've realized that this is affecting my studies as well. Any suggestions? P.S. I just moved between countries for graduate school. Um, with sadness, I mean... It could still be overwhelming to your system because you're not remembering things because your memory is a little bit uh, muddied or hazy during those times. I really believe it could be dissociation again. And it's the memory. And I have videos. uh, Check out my videos. Get on YouTube and look up Katie Morton Dissociation. I talk a lot about it. I have a ton of videos talking about it. Um, I'd really dig into that. But again, yes, I really think it is because the memory loss and feeling completely disconnected those are two main symptoms of dissociation in my experience and i believe that that's what's happening because you're just getting overwhelmed and moving between countries for graduate school there's just a lot going on now someone asks could this be emotional dysregulation yes Um, i have episodes where i am deeply distressed and dysregulated for extended periods of time but can never identify what emotions i'm feeling other than that they're big and overwhelming it is very disconcerting as I have little to no control over these attacks and I feel entirely bleak and without hope during them. This is a common symptom of trauma and complex PTSD, which I have. Could this be what you're experiencing? And yes, I just added that in there because I, I really, it is part of that dis, that emotional dysregulation and feeling so overwhelmed that our brain pulls a ripcord and being deeply distressed, like this person says, you know, can come out of complex PTSD and trauma. Unfortunately, it's a lot for our system to manage just on the daily. And so when anything else happens, it can push us into this dysregulation or dissociation. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. It says, Hi, Katie, I have a difficult relationship with food. It's almost impossible for me to eat if I'm with people. I make it look like I eat most of the time. If there's um, if there's absolutely no getting around it then i can force myself just so there isn't a scene but it makes me really uncomfortable uncomfortable and i find myself self-harming afterwards this sounds like an eating disorder the thing is that i'm not the typical body size of someone who struggles like this there is no certain body for an eating disorder all shapes and sizes what you're talking about right now this food situation where you can't eat in front of people and it makes you uncomfortable and then you self harm that's eating disorder behavior i'm just i'm just telling you okay um, so I've always thought that it can't be bad. I know that's the thing about people assuming eating disorders look a certain way. They don't. Um, now I'm starting to question, maybe it's an issue. Is this a sign of an eating disorder or just weird? Thanks for all that you do. And sorry if this is a silly question. This is not silly. Um, eating disorders comes in all shapes and sizes your inability to eat in front of people and the discomfort that it causes you and the fact that then you use self-injury to cope. So it's like, we can't cope with the food. We were forced to eat. Fuck, 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 fuck. I guess I have to self-injure. That is very normal eating disorder behavior. I have a lot of patients who toggle between using their self-injury and their eating disorder to self-soothe or to cope with what else is going on. I've talked about this a lot over the years, but eating disorders aren't vanity metrics. There's there's nothing about that. We don't, it's not actually about the food or our body. It's about what it helps us numb out from. Am I ignoring the fact that I was traumatized as a kid by eating so much that I'm uncomfortable and I can't think about anything else? Or am I numbing out from, you know, the emotional neglect and abuse that I sustained in my last relationship? And by I don't eat so that I'm so uncomfortable and so hungry, all I can think about is food. So I don't have to think about that, right? Like, how are we using it to cope I pass that question off to you to spend some time to think about it. Be curious, not judgmental. Now, there was a comment on this as if I may add, I really struggle with eating at other people's places. I don't mind eating in front of people or in a restaurant, but I just can't do it at other people's homes. It's gotten to the point that I avoid invitations as I'm unable to eat anything. It is so off-putting. Is it anxiety or eating disorder related or maybe a result of trauma? I was abused by my grandmother when I was a child and she would call me greedy often in relation to food. There you go. I really struggle with it. And my therapist told me that she's never come across something similar and she needs to consult with a more experienced colleague. Okay. Yes, this is eating disorder related. And you, you right there, you just knew exactly where it came from. And here's the thing the way to know it's an eating disorder first of all I've said this over and over again over the years is like if it takes up most of your brain space if most of your brain space is taken up with thoughts of food getting food not getting food eating not eating then that's an eating disorder but in the DSM there's always this part this one diagnostic criteria that says um, it affects or impairs sorry I was trying to look for that word impairs our ability to function and so the, that functionality component is what's affecting you here. You're not able to eat anything. And so you're avoiding invitations. So it's a, it's affecting your social life. And so I'm just, um, I just want to tell you that that's definitely an eating disorder and I'm glad you told your therapist and you know exactly where it's coming from. So let's dig in there. And the final comment on this says, Hey, Katie, I was wondering what's the difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating? Recently, I've been catching myself skipping meals, looking at calories, and not allowing myself more than a certain amount all day as I'm scared that I will gain weight. I also think about food a lot and when I can eat and when I can skip more meals than usual. I can't tell if I'm doing it for attention, however, as I can't seem to escape the thoughts and guilt whenever I eat. I'm also normally on the skinny side, so no one is really noticing. Okay, I'm just going to cut there because the, the truth about this is disordered eating is an eating disorder. It just is catching it early, which we should all be like hoping to do. And the fact that you're skipping meals, paying attention to the calories, all of that brain space is being taken up with thoughts of food. And unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that that's an eating disorder. Please speak up. Please reach out for help. Eating disorders can be treated and we can get some support. Often it comes in the form of recovery from trauma and things like that. But you can get there. It gets better. I've seen it day in and day out for years and years and years. So yes, that is an eating disorder. And I really don't think there's that big of a difference between disorder to eating and eating disorder. It's just catching it early. Okay. Our final question, question number nine says, Hi, Katie. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I am. My question is, how can I notice when my eating disorder thoughts are trying to sneak in on me again? I find that my eating disorder voice is so difficult to distinguish from me and other thoughts. And therefore, I do not notice the signs until my therapist eventually notices them for me. I hope this makes sense. Totally makes sense. I guess what I would do, the thing, the homework I have for you is with your therapist, start talking about this and ask your therapist what they notice. I want you to start paying more attention because eating disorders are sneaky motherfuckers and they come in there with something small. Like, you know what? Maybe I won't have the avocado on that. I don't even know if I really like avocado. Hmm. Right? It tries to tell us that certain things just don't taste good. I actually decided I don't like bread. I've had so many patients all of a sudden be like, you know, I think I'm going to be a vegetarian. Now I'm not saying the vegetarians have eating disorders. I'm just saying that when my patients have eating disorders or in recovery, eat meat totally fine, and all of a sudden don't. I'm very suspicious, and I want you to be suspicious too. We have to be a detective about our eating disorders. So ask your therapist what they notice, and then I want you to try to dig in and pay attention. So having these thoughts. What are the thoughts that your eating disorder tells you? What are the things your therapist has noticed? Let's use that information and be a detective and figure out where it's coming from because we have to get to know ourselves and our eating disorder better so we can catch it early. And only you really have that information. But taking that time to kind of maybe even think back to the last relapse or the last time your eating disorder snuck up on you, are we able to pinpoint some of the behaviors or some of the thoughts that came about The more we can gather, the better we'll be able to notice it early next time and be able to nip it in the bud. Okay? Okay. There was a comment on this. Um, It said, just for some background, I used to have a restrictive eating disorder in high school and it went away on its own. Honey. Okay. I'm always when my patients tell me that I'm like, I'm always suspicious. I'm like, what'd you use instead that time? Okay. I went through a fair amount of trauma in high school, particularly at the end and had a lot of bad coping strategies, most of which I've stopped, but I've started to emotionally eat because those bad coping strategies are gone. You're coping with that. Now we're using this again. Um, most of which have stopped, but I've recently started emotionally eating and want to stop, especially because I want to lose the weight I've put on. Okay. I don't mean to laugh. It's just like, I feel like I'm one of my patients, like you're talking through her. My GP says that to stop emotional eating, I could try finding other ways to trigger the feel-good chemicals in my brain. No, 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 sorry, your GP doesn't understand eating disorders. Please find a therapist who understands eating disorders, and I want you to find other ways to cope. And also consider like the root of this, right? It's the trauma. We need to find a trauma specialist who can help us heal from what you went through in high school so that you can feel better be yourself overcome this urge to use food to cope you're coping with all you know there's no shame in that the only thing we usually know to control is ourselves and that's what you're trying to do but i'm here to tell you that it can and will get better we just need to find a way to heal from that trauma and it's not about triggering the feel-good chemicals you're i get what you're GP, you're trying to help i appreciate that but that's not that's not gonna do it um we need to heal the pain that we're trying to numb out by using food or those un- other unhealthy coping skills, right? We just swip swapped one for the other, which is very common because the root of it, the reason that those things exist is still there, which is that trauma and that PTSD that you're experiencing. And then the last comment on this is also what to do if I told my therapist that I have an eating disorder and she doesn't follow up, even though it's obvious I've lost weight. Bring it up again and then find someone else. Ask, ask to be referred to an eating disorder specialist. I know it's hard, but you should not have to tell a therapist. I always like to give them at least one more chance because maybe you're in the middle of working on something else and they just ran out of time to bring it up that second time. So I want you to bring it up one more time. And then if they don't, then we have to find someone else because we need someone who's going to listen, who's going to take it seriously, and who's going to get us the support that we need. Okay? Because you all deserve to get the right help and to feel better. Thank you so much for listening and watching. I hope this was helpful. Please share this podcast. Please give it a review. Um, That really, really helps. Have a wonderful week. Take care of yourselves and do your homework. If I told you to be a detective and write things down, I want you to do it. And you can leave it in the comments if you feel so so, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. If you feel so inclined, I would love to see it. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye. you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.